From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Good Friday edition of Washington Watch. We are so glad that you are with us, but we also hope that you are making plans to observe not only Good Friday, but also Easter this weekend with people you love and, most importantly, uh, with Jesus. Now, you can find our show at TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Gab, you can find Tony at, at Tony underscore Perkins. You never know who's going to be when you're going to get canceled. So we encourage you to connect with us through text by texting the word stand to 67742. So you can always get FRC updates sent directly to you. Also, you can download the Stan Firm app at the App Store and on Google Play so that you can listen to every episode of Washington Watch, wherever you are, close to a radio or not. Now, It is something of a tradition on Washington Watch on Good Friday to get an understanding of how people will be observing the Holy Week around the world and and what is happening, and particularly this year in light of COVID, the as we emerge from that, how are things different this year than they were last year? And they are significantly different, and fortunately, things are improving in a lot of ways. So and we're going to talk today about um, why the Holy Week is dangerous for some Christians all around the world with Ariel Del Turco. We're also going to get an update on state restrictions around the country with Ryan Tucker from the Alliance Defending Freedom, and we will close the program discussing how to think better biblically about forgiveness, both in light of the cancel culture as, and also in the light of Easter. And we'll do that with David Clausen. So stay tuned. But first, we are going to go to Israel, not only to get an update on the Holy Week, but also to get an update on some elections there. Because it has been a very interesting election season, one that those of us in the United States might not be able to relate to, but to catch us up to speed and help us understand what is going on in Israel, we are joined by Chris Mitchell, who is the Middle East Bureau Chief for CBN News. Chris, welcome back to the program. Hey, Joseph. Great to be with you from Jerusalem. Well, we are so glad to have you, and we are hoping you can give us a bit of an education, because uh, those of us in the United States might not understand why we need to have five elections consecutively. Um, so to start us off, what are, the, what are the big differences between the way elections are conducted there and the way elections are conducted here in the United States? Well, first of all, Joseph, it's a parliamentary uh, system over here, so you have the parties Uh, many parties. Actually, there were 39 parties that were eligible to be voted for in this fourth election. Uh, Thirteen parties actually made enough, get enough votes to qualify to enter into the Knesset. And what has to happen after the election is those parties that qualify to get into the parliament, uh, they have to join together uh, to form a majority uh, party. Now, there's 120 seats in the Knesset, so uh, a coalition of parties has to get a minimum of 61 seats uh, to form a coalition government. Uh, The problem right now in Israel for the last four elections and possibly the fifth election will be that it has been unable for any party to get the 61 seats. I I should qualify that to say 
that the third election, there was uh, a coalition government. Uh, but from the very start, it was dysfunctional. Uh, you had parties that were really in typical to, uh, to each other. And uh, so it didn't last long. It lasted about seven months. So that's why we had the fourth election. Uh, right now, Joseph, it, it's even uh, seems more difficult uh, to form a government than the last three. The reason for that is that many of the parties are divided on either pro-Benjamin Netanyahu uh, or against Benjamin Netanyahu. That was the theme before the election. Now, after the election, uh, they're gaining, uh, trying to get support one or the other. Uh, they call one block called the change block, meaning they want to change Benjamin Netanyahu is no longer prime minister. And the other one, which would be likely uh, those that would uh, settle for right. prime minister Netanyahu continue. Right. Chris, I, I, to help us understand kind of the timeline here, if there have been now four elections that still have not received a 61 vote um, coalition necessary to form a government, how 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 much time is there between each one of these elections? How long has this been going on? Well, it depends if there's a government. Like I said, the last time uh, there were about seven months, and it, it uh, fell back in uh, right at the end of December. So here we have January, February, uh, March, about almost three months between elections. Or if, right now, the timetable, Joseph, is that next week. Uh, the Israeli president, Reuven Rivlin, will meet with all 13 parties. Uh, he will ask them individually who they want to uh, be the next prime minister and the next party to try to form a government. That particular party, whomever he chooses, will have 30 days to form a coalition government. If they're unsuccessful, they have 15 more days. It's a great period. If that's unsuccessful, they have a time period where anybody in the Knesset can try to be prime minister uh, that's happened in the second election. And uh, if that doesn't happen, they go to fifth elections later this year. Well, at the risk of getting into another issue, uh, there are lots of elections happening in Israel, which means a lot of people are voting. Does Israel require voter ID to cast a ballot? Yes, you have to have a yes. I believe you do have to have a, a voter ID to cast a ballot here. And uh well, yeah, I, well, I think that's one of the issues I know you're dealing with in the states right now. We certainly are, and, and I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that answer, but I suppose some people might be surprised to hear that other countries require people to identify themselves before they vote. But we're not going to go there today in, significantly. Now, you talked about the, the blocks that have formed around either support for or opposition to Benjamin Netanyahu. Is that the primary uh, issue that is dividing the parties, or are there other issues? There are other issues, but I think that's the predominant one, Joseph, is that those that uh, want Benjamin Netanyahu to be uh, to end his sort of uh, longest serving time as prime minister and those that support him. The other issues would be obviously right wing parties against the left wing parties. Uh, but in, here in Israel, it's even more complicated because you have some secular parties that don't want to sit in a government with the religious parties. Uh, you have some right wing parties right now that are part of the change block that don't want to sit with Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and then you have religious parties that don't want to sit with some of the Arab parties, and the Arab parties don't want to sit with some of the religious parties. So those those dynamics complicate it very much. Uh, somebody's 
described as sort of like a political Rubik's Cube. Now, right now, Joseph, the key is a small Arab party called Ra'am, which has only four seats, but they could be the possible kingmaker. This is a party that really is, you could describe as non-Zionist. Uh, they really doesn't believe in the Jewish state, and yet they may determine who is the next uh, prime minister, depending with they go with the change block, the anti-Netanyahu camp, or they want to. He would serve with, uh, in some capacity, even from outside the government, uh, with the Netanyahu government. And it's my assumption that as this coalition is debated and, and um, discussions take place and, and deals are made, that parties like this one that has only four seats would be. Um, kind of trading their support in exchange for promises that if we form the majority, there's some things that we're going to get. Is this just typical politicking in that sense where where um, minority groups want – or smaller parties, I should say, they, they end up getting things in exchange for their support to form a block that would that, be a majority? That's exactly, and, and that's exactly what the leader of this uh, small party called Mansour Abbas is, is asking for. He wants yeah. more uh, – Financial support for the uh, Arab population, and uh, and that's exactly what's going on. Not only with uh, that party, but many of the other parties' promises uh, back and forth. How do you see this going? What do you, what do you think the outcome of this is going to be? Now, I understand it seems that there's going to be a fifth election, which I understand is unusual. But what's your prediction for how this turns out? Well, Joseph, that's hard to do, uh, 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 predicting actually what's going to happen. If I would say anything, uh, probably fifth elections. However, it really does depend on how all this uh, horse trading goes on, promises uh, made to certain people. Uh, Now, Naftali Bennett, who is part of uh, the Yamina party, he said he won't allow Israel to go to fifth elections. He will be key as well, and if he makes an agreement with perhaps the uh, change block, if he goes that way, uh, he's a natural right winger, so that's uh, something that would be hard for him to do politically, but he might do something to avoid a fifth election. Uh, if I would say anything, um, be surprised. <laughs> and pray. I think, you know, a lot of people in the audience I know pray for Israel, right. pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's, it's so important right now uh, with all this political confusion in Israel, and and you have a Middle East that doesn't change. Iran is getting uh, more dangerous. Uh, China is uh, increasing its influence here in the region. Uh, So really, Israel needs to be healed internally and politically. Mm -hmm. Now, is all of this political horse trading and negotiating, is this building um, unlikely relationships? Is is there any chance this builds something that's helpful? Uh, in the future, as people kind of come together across lines, or is this creating further factions and divisions within the Israeli political system? Unfortunately, it seems like it's building more divisions, and some of those divisions are becoming uh, even more uh, hardened, I would say, uh, their positions. Uh, There was a hope uh, right after the elections that there would be some sort of reconciliation between some of these uh, parties as well as personalities. Uh, Some of this is just as political, it's personal, uh, mainly between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and a defector from his party called Likud. Uh, that was Gidon Saar, uh, Naftali Bennett, and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. There's no secret over here. They, there's 
uh, sort of a strained relationship, to put it mildly. Uh, so uh, that is uh, is happening right now in, in the midst of all this horse trading and negotiations. Uh, the hope is that there'll be some reconciliation as well. Well, Chris, we've got a, a couple minutes left here. I want to transition briefly to talk about Easter and what the Easter weekend is going to be in Jerusalem and in, is, and in Israel. In light of COVID, how are things different this year than they were last year for those who will be celebrating? Well, Joseph, they're huge. Uh, I remember uh, when COVID hit over here, I started doing Facebook Lives, uh, which people can get that on Jerusalem Dateline. Last year on the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, I was the only one on the, on the mountain that I could see. Yes, this year, Palm Sunday, thousands of people uh, walked down Mount of Olives, recreating what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus entered triumphantly into uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Good Friday, uh, will be hundreds of people on the Via Della Rosa. Uh, I was today on the uh, in the upper room. Uh, there were people up there singing. So it, it's really changed quite a bit, and people here, uh, Christians anyway, that are in the country, are celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Chris Mitchell, Middle East Bureau Chief for CBN News, thank you so much for joining us. And Thanks. Coming up after the break, we will continue uh, talking about what Easter is like for people around the country. But make sure that you do pray for Israel. Pray for those elections and pray for those who will be gathering around the country in celebration of Easter and around the world. And that's what we're going to talk about next. We're going to talk about persecution, the risks associated with being a Christian on Easter around the world. We'll discuss it after the break. Stay tuned. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I-, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in anytime. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, 
check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the world's foremost violator of religious freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home, sitting in for Tony Perkins. While Easter should be a time of celebration for Christ followers... For many of our brothers and sisters around the world, it can also be a tense time. Christian communities across Indonesia, for starters, are bracing for more attacks ahead of Easter Sunday following a suicide bombing at a church that left 20 wounded on Palm Sunday. The suicide bombers are believed to be members of Jima Anshirat Dalu, which has pledged allegiance to the Islamic State group and carried out a series of suicide bombings in Indonesia. And Sunday's attack is just the latest. Attacks and threats against churches during Holy Week are part of the reality for many around the world. With me to talk more about what Christians in different parts of the world are typically facing during this time is Ariel Del Turco, Assistant Director of the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. Ariel, welcome back to the program. Thanks to be with you, Joseph. Well, first, you might be able to tell me if I totally butchered the name of that group in Indonesia, um, and if no, I did, you did great. You, you did great. You should, okay. Well, well, thank you. I uh, I don't always trust myself there, but uh, what do we know about what is what is happening in Indonesia with that particular bombing? Yeah. So we know that there were two attackers. They're actually believed to be newlyweds, and they're believed to be linked to this group that's affiliated with ISIS. And Indonesia has been struggling with this in recent years as ISIS has been defeated in the Middle East. Some of these fighters are returning there and causing problems for communities in Indonesia. But we also just know that this attack was motivated against the church. It was directed against the church during Holy Week in between Palm Sunday services. So people were exiting one mass and entering another. So they were really trying to have a maximum impact and terrorize the Christian community there. And this has been part of a pattern, hasn't it, for people in Indonesia and that part of the world that during Holy Week in particular, they're targeted. Is Is this a pattern or is that just me? No, that's correct, especially at Christmas and Easter. These are the two times when um, Christians are especially targeted, partly because these are very high-profile and meaningful events for the Christian community, but also because people are concentrated 
terrorists and bad non-state actors know where Christians are going to be at this time, and that leaves them vulnerable. Is there, are, are these kind of things, uh, these attacks, is there intelligence that's warning of these things? Is, is the, are the local officials um, alert to this and making efforts to stop it? Or is it just something that you're just kind of taking the risk on? Well, thankfully for Indonesia, we have seen the government trying to crack down on these. And even in response to this attack, the president came out and said, we don't want any religious communities to practice their faith in fear. We don't want you to go to your houses of worship in fear because we respect the freedom of worship in Indonesia. So they're actually one of the better countries in the Muslim world. But as you indicated, this happens in other countries as well, um, especially Christmas and Easter. So we've seen this against Coptic Christians in Egypt. We've seen it in Pakistan. Um, The authorities in Pakistan actually stopped a bomb threat that was about to happen this past Christmas. So this is a reality for Christians in a lot of places. How are those churches, those congregations, those communities responding when this happens? Well, the important thing to recognize is that Christians in these places, they know there's a certain amount of risk, yet they go to church. They celebrate the resurrection of Christ. They continue to practice their faith. And I think that really speaks to the meaning of, first of all, their beliefs, but also around this holiday. I mean, we're celebrating a Savior who suffered and died and rose again for our sins. And even if there's a risk of suffering, Christians around the world are still going to celebrate Christ. I think that can be a a convicting meditation for those of us in the Western world who are certainly, in in that sense, uh, very safe, we would think, though safety is often an illusion. But we think we're safe, certainly from, uh, from... frequent attacks by terrorists in our churches. But many of us have stayed away because of viruses that we've been concerned about for the last 12 months. But it is, I think, helpful to um, be aware of the much more serious risks that our brothers and sisters face around the world, yet they gather. They do not forsake the assembling of themselves uh, together. Uh, now, I want to talk about in the other parts of the world, why, why do we think um, – we talked a little – that this is happening in the Holy Week, but are there other times of year? Do we see a spike statistically during these seasons, or is this just they're, – they're just targeting Christians whenever they can, and this happens to be a good time? Well, it does happen to be a convenient time, but even – Um, government authorities that are oppressive will do the same thing. In Iran, we see um, the authorities there will actually round up Christians during Christmas because, um, or especially Christians of of a Muslim background, because it's illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity in Iran. So we'll see them actually try to round up Christians who are going to house churches and gathering at Christmas time. So it's just, it's a It's an opportunity that um, leaves Christians vulnerable when they're standing out and living out their faith. Now, you mentioned Iran, which is a place where I know the the church is growing uh, very quickly. One of the fastest growing parts of the church in the world is in Iran. Do you think there's any connection between that, between the persecution that these churches face and the growth that they're experiencing? 
Well, some Christians actually do say that. They say um, that it actually inspires more radical faith because the people that are drawn to Christianity in these places, they know the risk, yet they believe it's worth it. So when they evangelize, they're serious. They know that the cost that they can have, but they believe that it's worth it to bring people to Christ and save their souls. Ariel, very quickly, what can we do to help churches and believers around the world during Easter? Yeah, the number one thing is to pray. Um, As you're celebrating Easter, remember the importance of it and to pray for the persecuted church around the world. And we will. Ariel Del Turco, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Coming up, we'll continue to look at Holy Week by zooming back into the United States. This Easter weekend will look very different for many churches compared to last year with more and more states lifting restrictions. Where do most states stand? We'll talk about it after the break. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and it's my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony Perkins. 
Churches in Washington, D.C. this weekend will be able to hold in-person services for Good Friday and Easter without being limited to 25% capacity or 250 people after a federal judge lifted the city's coronavirus restrictions on houses of worship late last week. Now, this is just the latest in a string of good news for churches across the nation that have been seeing states move from percentage limits to no restrictions after months of being restricted by state and local governments. With me now to talk about how things are looking for churches across the country is Ryan Tucker, Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Christian Ministries at Alliance Defending Freedom. Ryan, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. Can you give us an update on which states still have some form of caps and and those who have lifted the restrictions entirely? Well, a number of them across the country have uh, gotten the message and have lifted those caps. But there are a handful of states, um, mostly on the on the coast and certainly in California, where you know they still have a number of what I think are onerous restrictions on the church. And in some instances, those are um, uh, counties where local officials are um, not enforcing those, and in others where they are. But uh, it's been a really rough year, but we are seeing things um, trending in a very good direction. Tell us about some of those cases that I know ADF and you have been involved with that have seen some of those restrictions lifted. Sure. Well, it's hard to believe that about a year ago, um, a little over a year ago is when, when this first started for us, and I got a phone call about a situation in the, in the Bible Belt in, in Greenville, Mississippi. And there uh, we had a situation where local officials had issued what in essence amounted to a church closure order, which prohibited uh, this local church from being able to hold drive-in church services um, or risk facing $500 penalties and, and, and criminal sanctions. And so um, this church uh, actually held a service where the pastor was inside on an FM transmitter. Nobody got out of their cars. It was a drive-in service, and uh, they were met with local officials showing up. Uh, there were eight different cop cars. They handed them tickets, and, and I knew right then when I got that phone call, I was like, okay, this, things have, have, have really uh, shifted for the worse. And that was right before Easter. We got involved, and fortunately, they were able to uh, have a service together. And then you move ahead uh, just a few months. We had the case in, in Nevada where casinos were being treated better than the church. Absolute insanity to have, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people on the Las Vegas Strip. Yet churches in that great state were limited to, to 50 people. Now, you know, those wrongs were eventually righted. Uh, the United States Supreme Court in a case uh, out of New York the Diocese of Brooklyn case uh, was really, you know, the first uh, good case that really changed the dynamic where the court, and this just sounds shocking, but for the first time really recognized that you look at these cases through the lens of the First Amendment, not some sort of deferential standard to, to local officials, which up until that right. point had really been the case. Well, isn't there some science that shows that the coronavirus spreads more effectively in churches than in casinos? Did they have something like that, you know, or is that not true? You, you, know, Joseph, you know, Joseph, you joke with it, but I'll tell you this. If, if one were to actually go back and watch our Ninth Circuit argument, we did win win that case at the Ninth Circuit um, uh, eventually. 
But there were arguments being made uh, by the state of Nevada that the uh, restrictions that the casinos had supposedly put in place somehow, I guess, mitigated the risk more supposedly from uh, uh, those attending church services. And I, I tell you this, um, I think we've all seen the one-armed bandits and folks sitting in uh, casinos for hours on end. And, and I can tell you, I, I find that quite uh, a shocking argument. And the, and the Ninth Circuit judges actually audibly laughed when those arguments were being made. Well, good for them. Good for them. Now, you, you do say that things seem to be trending in the right direction, which is encouraging. And how much of this, um, the, this trend in the right direction, is that due to the the curve of the coronavirus or are these legal arguments that are kind of prevailing regardless of what's happening with the coronavirus? I think it's both. I mean, you know, we, uh, yeah, I think after the Diocese of Brooklyn case, certainly on, on the legal side, you know, you, you started to see this, this, this shift, if you will, that's the way the ninth circuit this, uh, uh, described it um, right after Thanksgiving. So you have a shift there, but also you had, you know, uh, you did have a little bit of an up and down across the nation with some of some of the numbers, but it's a little bit of both. Um, but after the U.S. Supreme Court's victory, I think a number of governors got the message: Wait a second, um, you know, I've been had. I mean, we we've been you know putting these restrictions in place. We don't have any uh, true basis for it. Pulling numbers, you know, sort of out of a hat and and uh, restricting the church is is, is not. Um, certainly constitutional. And, and I think in many jurisdictions, that's exactly what was going on. Um, not that some didn't have, um, you know, good intentions, but that's just the work about. Well, we will continue to monitor this. And, and Ryan, we do appreciate you and everyone at Alliance Defending Freedom for the work that you do in the court as well as in the court of public opinion, uh, keeping uh, churches open so that we can worship and keeping uh, the ever intrusive reach of government at bay. Appreciate that and appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jake. Now, coming up, I will be closing out the program on Good Friday discussing forgiveness. Not only do we need to uh, forgive intrusive governments sometimes and bad judges, but uh, lots of other things as well. Uh, we also have a lot to be grateful for because we have ourselves been forgiven. So we're going to talk about how to think biblically about forgiveness with David Clawson coming up after the break. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. 
1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm closing out the week with you here at Washington Watch in place of Tony Perkins. Now, it is Good Friday. And one what we, what we celebrate on Good Friday, though, Good Friday is really the sad part. Though, for Jesus, it was the sad part. For us, it was a great part, which is completed again, of course, on Easter Sunday. When Jesus died for us, that was the payment of our sin. That was the justice that was done that uh, we as Christians understand was necessary to reconcile us to God. That was just. But what it also did is it dealt with a debt that we had uh, so that we could be uh, forgiven. And forgiveness is what I want to think about. And and we have brought here into the studio David Clausen, who is the uh, director of Christian Ethics in Biblical Worldview. Got to make sure I get that right. At FRC, David, welcome back again. It's great to be with you, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Well, we're so glad you're here. Let's talk about this uh, forgiveness. Um, To start, why is this an important topic right now in our culture? Of course, you know, FRC is a, we're a political organization, but we're a Christian organization. I think this, the subject of of forgiveness kind of transcends those those boundaries. Why do you think it's important that we get this issue of forgiveness correctly? Yeah, that's a great question, Joseph. And when you look at really all the issues that we're dealing with right now, whether it's issue questions about uh, capital punishment, questions related to race relations, um, how to, to kind of atone for historical injustices, 
or even what we're seeing now um, with cancel culture, uh, th- this idea that uh, people can have ideas that are just irretrievably um, corrupt or evil uh, to where that they just need to be canceled. You can't even right. participate in culture anymore. You know, th- it's just interesting. The whole notion of forgiveness right now is just largely not understood at all in our culture. People don't want to forgive. Uh, they yeah. want to be right. Uh, they want to get their point across. And if they have to run over you to do so, uh, they're going to do that. Yeah. I, I, another example. This one actually kind of surprises me. You know, cancel culture, I feel like I'm not surprised by anymore because rage is just kind of so normal, it seems. But this week, the story that in Atlanta – or in, in Georgia, because of their voter ID laws, apparently Major League Baseball is having discussions about removing the All-Star game from Atlanta this summer because they have voter ID. <laughs> they want to require identification for people cast a vote, right? So we, we saw this happen in recent years in North Carolina with HB2. We've seen it happen lots of places where the movie industry says, oh, we're not going to film something there. Um, or... Um, you know, certainly companies. We're going to boycott your company. We're not going to go there. We're going to shut it down. Um, we're, you know, we're going to protest outside your bakery until it gets shut down, whatever that is. Um, but the number of things, it's not only the idea that we're not forgiving. It seems like the number of hill to die on issues is growing exponentially as well, where this is no longer about like hatred or bigotry, perceived hatred or bigotry on LGBT issues. It's not like, Voter ID laws. Um, we just don't like that law. Therefore, we're going <laughs> to move the all-star game. Why is it that, that the the number of things we're fighting over intensely is growing so much? I think one of the reasons, Joseph, it's growing so much is our, our colleague here at FRC, George Barna, uh, one of the, the polls he does every year, the American Worldview Inventory, recently came back and showed that only 6% of Americans – have what you could call a biblical worldview, only only 6%. Right. And so that means the vast majority of people that we interact with just don't understand uh, concepts or issues the way you and I would. They just don't see the world Christians. the same way. They, they don't see the world the same way. And so there's just – and as our society becomes more secular and more disconnected from that biblical worldview – there are going to be more and more issues that we fundamentally disagree on. And, you know, as Christians, Joseph, you know, the kind of the temptation is when that pressure comes to the kind of clench your fist, to try to tighten up, right. you know, you're ready to, if, you're, if they're swinging at you, you're ready to swing back. Right. And that's where the Christian gospel comes in and actually tells us a different story. Mm-hmm. And that's where this issue of forgiveness comes in. That even if someone mistreats you, and let's be real, there are people right now that are being mistreated right. for their Christian views. And of course, that doesn't mean you, you roll over. We, we have legal recourse. But I think what the Christian gospel does, it gets to our hearts. And our impulse as Christians shouldn't be to strike back. It's to actually forgive, uh, to want to see people that are doing us wrong. We want to see them come uh, to a right understanding of things. We want to see them to be reconciled with a holy God. And why do we do this? We, we forgive because we've been forgiven of so much. Yeah, I think that that there is... The heart of forgiveness from a from a gospel perspective. I'm gonna see if I can I can find some of some of the the scripture in this because I think it's important to make this this reference where forgiveness. Let me let me see. We have I don't have them top of my mind. I need to grab those. But the idea that because we forgive, because we are forgiven, Paul says this, Jesus says this. It's throughout the gospel um, letters, and maybe you have those with you because I I. 
But the point is understanding as believers that a lack of – when we don't extend forgiveness – this is the parable of the debtor, right? Yes. The, 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 the debtor that was forgiven everything but then was owed a little bit by someone else and was not willing to forgive that debt. Isn't that essentially what we do when Jesus forgives all – Yes. But then somebody else who who offends us, either perceived or real, hurts us. When we don't forgive that, we are minimizing the degree to which we have been forgiven. No, absolutely right, Joseph. And, and a couple of verses that really just underscore that point in the New Testament. And Paul, writing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, right. verse 32, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Right. Another one, uh, Colossians three thirteen, uh, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you yeah. has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In the passage you just referenced, I was actually uh, looking at this before I came on the show, Joseph, uh, Matthew 18, uh, the parable uh, that Jesus tells in response to a question about forgiveness. Peter asked Jesus, how much should I go on forgiving? And he tells them a, um, a parable of the unforgiving, ser- uh, the unforgiving servant where there's this guy who actually, if you do the math, you know, yeah. we don't know what a talent is or denarius is, mm-hmm. but essentially some guy owed $200,000 or 200,000 years worth of debt. Right. Couldn't pay it, he was forgiven, and yet he couldn't forgive right. someone who just owed 100 days uh, worth of wages. And, and the whole point of all of that is that Jesus is saying, as those who've been reconciled with God, who've had our, 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 our sin wiped clean, right. forgiven, we need to have that same spirit and the same impulse towards others. Yeah. Though I, I find comfort in the fact that they asked Jesus that question. Yeah. Hey, Jesus, how, how many times do we have to forgive people? Why do you ask that question? Because we all have that impulse of like, enough is enough, you know. In, in this gospel of forgiveness that Jesus was bringing was, was new and revolutionary. And so they're hearing this and they're like, well, you know, that's cool. I can do that two or three times. But eventually, you know, aren't we supposed to like exact revenge, get our pound of flesh? Yeah. And, and I find, and that just illustrates the fact that they were asking Jesus that question when he was physically walking on the earth is proof to me that this is not a new dilemma, that every, every generation, every nation, every tribe of humans has struggled with this because we have always been sinners. We have always been hurting each other. We have always been victimizers and in one sense, victims of other people. We've, we all get hurt. And so we all have to confront this dilemma of how many times do I have to forgive you? Because at some point they don't deserve it, do they? And that's what that was the what was behind Peter's question, and what Jesus was just explaining to him is, you know what, you your your posture needs to be for, to forgive and leave ultimate justice up to God, uh, because as Christians we have those categories not just of forgiveness but of justice, and you you write about this in your right. blog, thinking biblically about forgiveness, yeah. which is on the FRC blog. Let me, let me just underscore one point, Joseph. It's Good Friday. Uh, I'm about to go to a Good Friday service here at my church here in Washington, D.C. And you, you and I are talking about forgiveness, and I, I, I don't want a listener to think we're just, you know, blibbly talking about forgiveness as is, uh, you know, this is easier or something. You know, to purchase that ultimate forgiveness for us, it was not easy. Right. Uh, we're, again, we're observing Good Friday right now. Uh, last night, Thursday, uh, Jesus would have been in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, praying, as Luke tells us, drops like blood. Uh, he was just so worked up. And ultimately, Jesus, he was betrayed. He was mocked. He was beaten. Mm-hmm. And worse 
than all the physical torture he went through, he bore God's wrath for sin. All the sin that's ever been committed, Jesus took that uh, on the cross, on himself, on the cross, bore the full weight of God's wrath, bore the curse, paid it all so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled with the Father. That's where, as Christians, we need to be thinking about forgiveness. If God did all that for us, when someone does something against us, even if it's not right, you know, we we should seek justice, but in our heart, we shouldn't hate that person. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. As with so many issues in life, the moment we take our eyes off ourselves, our perspective changes. And I think one of the keys to forgiveness can't—because forgiveness, the, the the temptation— not to forgive comes from this place of they don't deserve it. I deserve better. I have been hurt. And when we place ourselves in the center of that scenario, Hmm. then forgiveness becomes difficult. But when we don't place ourselves in the center of that scenario, even if the facts haven't changed, even if we've been hurt, if we realize that in the ultimate sense, in the eternal sense, we're not the victims, we're the victimizers. And what we have done to Jesus, what we have done to God is much worse. And he forgave us all of that. So when we are able to kind of just change the lens through which we're viewing the scenario, our demand for fairness goes away, right? Because... The desire not to forgive somebody is because we don't think they deserve it. It's not fair. They shouldn't get away with it. And on some level, we think that they're still being held responsible if we don't forgive them, right? But do we as Christians want fairness? No, absolutely not. Because again, what we're celebrating today on Good Friday with Jesus going to the cross, you know, if he was giving us what we deserved, Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Uh, No, there are none righteous. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. None of us are righteous before God. So if we got what our actions, what our lives deserved, well, what that would be, Joseph, that would be separation uh, from God for eternity. So ultimately, none of us actually want fairness. Yeah, we don't want what we deserve. And of course, uh, that's in our relationship between us and God, which does allow us to forgive others. And of course, um, we do want fairness in the sense that we want to treat other people well. And, and we don't use the fact that we've been forgiven and that we can be forgiven as an excuse to sin. And that's yep. something Paul writes about extensively as well, which is a different subject. But in, in the largest sense, we as Christians don't want what we deserve. And that's one of the fundamental truths of, of our faith is that what we deserve is hell. Yep. Better than hell is mercy. And yeah. we are grateful for mercy all the time. Now, does it make the pain less of being hurt sometimes? No, it doesn't. Does it, does it make the consequences more, less severe? No, it doesn't necessarily. Does not mean we have to forget things happened and trust people who are not trustworthy? No. But we can release uh, other people in the same way that God has released us from the responsibility for our sin. And how liberating that is, Joseph. If you and I, you know, think of how distressful it is if we think we have to settle every score, if we think we're the ones that have to achieve uh, justice uh, for every time that we've been wronged, that would be so exhausting. But ultimately, and it really is, a lot of people go through that. But again, that's what having this biblical worldview that you and I talk about gives us that perspective that even if we don't get justice in this life, God is the ultimate judge. Yes. And I want to go there, but to to make the connection to what's going on culturally and and politically, that that cycle of unforgiveness, the, the... 
urge to get revenge for every grievance is why the Middle East has been at war with itself for millennia. Because they never let any, nobody's ever willing to just lay down their arms and say, we're going to let the past be the past. We're going to move forward. And when you have two sides or three sides or four sides of a conflict and everybody insists on getting the last word, the cycle never ends. And that's where the gospel intrudes and it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And if everybody in a conflict agrees with that and says, ultimately, I don't have to get justice because justice is guaranteed by God in eternity. God does not guarantee fairness and justice in every scenario on earth. That's why, the, that's why forgiveness is so important. But God does guarantee that in eternity, all will be made right. The wrongs will be made right. All of our, our, our good deeds will be rewarded and our bad deeds will be punished. That's true for us and everybody else. So we don't have to carry that responsibility of leveling the scales because we can't do that anyway, can we? No, no we can't, Joseph. And I, I think, that, again, as Christians, having that, use a fancy theological word, that eschatological vision, yes. uh, thinking about the end times, how uh, at one, you know, at the end times, at the end of the age, God will make things right. And the, the, re, and the reason there's so much hope for, in that for us is that on Good Friday, the original Good Friday, when Jesus was, you know, on that, the, the road to the cross, you know, I've, I've been to Israel before, and you go into the praetorium and where he would have been tried before Pilate and beaten and scorned and then taken the cross and walked to the cross. He did that for you and I, so you and I could experience this forgiveness. And again, what peace and joy that can give us, especially today on Good Friday. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, aren't we thankful that Jesus did not cancel us, David Glosson? And so we don't necessarily need to cancel everybody else. Uh, because, and really, um, politically, spiritually, forgiveness is the answer. Forgiveness is also the example that we got Uh, from Jesus, and we should go and do likewise. So friends, wherever you are, as you get ready here on Good Friday, as you go observe the penalty that was paid uh, for your sins, remember that this boils down to forgiveness and be aware of 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 the debt that was taken care of for you so that you can go and do likewise, forgiving others as God in Christ forgave you. Happy Good Friday. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.